As a good Anglican priest, I love learning about the motherland, England. What we now call England was actually once a pagan land ruled by Celtic tribes. The legend is that Joseph of Arimathea, if you remember him from the Gospels, he's the rich man who gave his grave for Jesus to be laid in. The the legend is that Joseph of Arimathea took the gospel from Jerusalem to the land of the angels in Britannia. Well, by the time the Roman Catholic Church, I don't know if that's true, but that's the legend. By the time the Roman Catholic Church sent missionaries to this land, the Christian, Christianity had already been practiced for several centuries. As the faith uh, made inroads through the medieval period, the Celtic tribes became sort of small kingdoms that fought invading Vikings until the grand vision of Albert the Great finally came true and all of those tribes were united into a single kingdom that we now call England or Great Britain. Now, my goal here is to impress you with my armchair history lesson on the Anglican, on Anglican history. But I have to confess to you, most of this, not all of it, some of it I learned in seminary, but much of it I learned by watching the Netflix series, The Last Kingdom. The Last Kingdom traces the adventures of the fictitious Saxon hero Uhtred of Bebenbur. Now, I'm not exactly recommending this. It's very inappropriate and violent. <laughs> but I couldn't stop watching. But I bring it up because Uhtred is obsessed with the idea of destiny. Destiny. Each episode ends with a recap of the previous episode and with his forceful declaration that destiny is all. That's my Uhtred impression. So destiny. Can we even talk about destiny as Christians? This word isn't really in my vocabulary. I don't know about yours. But when I encounter the words of Paul, who tells us tonight that we are predestined, to be conformed to the image of God's Son, for some reason I keep thinking about Uhtred. But when we think about destiny, we usually think about a predetermined outcome of one's life. We might even say a predestined outcome. But my apologies to poor Uhtred. Gaining lost kingdoms for rival tribes, from rival tribes and Vikings has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in our passage this evening. Tonight, we want to know what it means to be predestined and conformed to the image of the Son of God. That is, that is according to Paul, our destiny. So last week, Paul spent some time acknowledging that the gospel, however grand and grandiose and glorious it may be, does not spare us from suffering in this life here and now. And even those of us who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us groan with anticipation, right? We groan just as all of the creation groans with anticipation, What all of God's creation, including human beings, is groaning for is for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. We we saw that last week. 
That is for you and me to live glorified lives, lives and complete obedience and submission to our creator. And this cannot happen until we are raised in glorified, redeemed bodies. It is his Holy Spirit that implants the anticipation of full redemption, however far off that may seem. And this week's passage continues this theme that he began last week. But it moves us into a disclosure of God's grand purposes for human beings, our destiny. In verse 26, he reiterates what he's been saying, but with a little more information. So we'll begin, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. We'll read the first two verses. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in the, mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We begin with Paul's continued empathy with our groaning, which we said last week was an anticipation or hope of glory. However, we do not groan alone. Just as creation and we ourselves long for our glorification, so does the Holy Spirit. But there is a problem, isn't there? How do we know how to groan? How do we know how to groan? On one hand, we don't need anyone to show us how to long for the end of suffering or the end of dissatisfaction or dysfunction or any kind of disorder. We know that perfectly well. But on the other hand, we have little idea how to end it ourselves. Otherwise, we wouldn't be groaning, would we? But we don't groan alone. As we've seen over the last several chapters of Romans, the good news is that by faith we have been reconciled to God and we are now found in Christ. This is a key word for Paul, in Christ. We may await our physical death and our physical resurrection, but we know that it has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, we have the Spirit of God who dwells within us and knows how we ought to pray. That is, the Holy Spirit knows exactly what we groan for and how our groaning will be fulfilled. And not only this, but the Holy Spirit knows the will of the Father. Now, just as a quick side note, when Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us, that is, that the Spirit prays for us with groans too deep for words, he's not talking about praying in tongues. This is often a, a, a sort of a, a loose interpretation of this passage. Praying in tongues is a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit. We read Paul talk about that elsewhere. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, that not everyone will speak in tongues. So here he is talking to the entire Roman church, Jew and Gentile Christians, not just those who possess a certain gift. So what he's saying is that we have an advocate, all of us, 
have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who knows what we do not know. So have you ever wondered what God's will for your life is? No. You've probably never wondered that before. What is God's will for your life? What's his will for your year? What's his will for tomorrow or today? It gets so frustrating, doesn't it? Because we just don't know sometimes or ever. The Holy Spirit does. And Paul tells us that he is asking the Father or interceding for us in order that God's will might take place despite our ignorance of it. And that's why you could say in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now here we have one of the most quoted verses of the Bible. Now, out of all the times that it's been quoted correctly, there are at least a few times when it's been quoted with the assumption that nothing bad can really happen to those who love Jesus. If you were here last week or heard that sermon, you know that that is a lie. It goes against everything that Paul said in the passage last week, earlier in chapter 8. The surrounding context of this verse is that despite our suffering which does not compare, remember, to the glory that will be revealed in us despite our suffering, even the bad things work out for the good. So it's not Pollyanna that should be quoting this verse, right? But it should be Joseph. Remember Joseph? The poor guy who was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery, only to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and spent years in prison? Remember that guy? He's the one that can quote this. Joseph had to wait a very long time before he could tell his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis that what they intended for evil, God intended for good. So what Paul is saying is that even our suffering and even our groaning are contributing to something that is far more significant. In other words, God takes the cancer diagnosis. God takes the divorce. God takes the death and loss and depression and bipolar disorder, and he bends them all into something good and beautiful. And here's what I want you to hear. That the bad never has the last word. The bad does not have the last word. Whatever evil exists, it must bend to God's purposes in the end. That doesn't end our suffering here or our longing, but it does assure us that our suffering and longing are not meaningless. It has a purpose. And here it is. It has an end goal which is conformity to the image of God's Son. Look in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Here it is. Destiny. Actually, predestiny. Now, this is one of the most controversial verses of the Bible. 
And the question is often whether God chooses certain people for salvation or whether his love and grace is open to all. Now, for the next chapter or so, Paul will use words like election, predestiny, predestination, or foreknowledge. Now, if you come from a Reformed background, Presbyterian background per se, maybe, what's the problem? There's no, there's no issue, right? But if you come from another background, this is where we kind of start to squirm, right? So I'm not so ambitious to endeavor to solve all and lay to rest once and for all all the controversies that have waged the last 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. But what I ask of you is to keep the context here in mind. Keep the context in mind. Paul has been addressing the disconnect between the glorious news of the gospel and our pre-glorified experience in a fallen world. There's a chasm between that, it seems to us. There's a trajectory, he is saying, that begins with the events of Christ's life, his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. It begins, this trajectory begins with the events of Christ's life. Not your life, not my life, but Christ's life. That's where it begins. And it will end with our glorification, our resurrection from the dead and glorification. His point here is that our movement along this trajectory is not subject to the undulating waves, right, of our earthly experiences. That trajectory is not subject to the undulating waves. We go along that trajectory, despite the suffering, despite the evil, despite all of the bad. The end to which we are all moving, the destiny to which we're all moving, is not only known by our triune God, but it is guaranteed. And this is the most basic meaning of predestined. A, de- a predetermined outcome before the outcome is ever reached. So, so much for the word predestined. But what is Paul saying about those he foreknew? He says he foreknew, those he foreknew, he predestined. What does foreknew mean? Well, when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it doesn't mean what you and I usually mean when we say that we know someone. We simply mean that we have some kind of information about each other, right? I have some information about you, you have some information about me, we can go off and tell people that we know each other. And then you and I might get together over a cup of coffee and get to know each other better, right? But the Bible talk, when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it often refers to a more intimate knowledge than what we're talking about. Now, just think about all those passages in the Old Testament where a husband knows his wife, and you'll know what I mean. It's intimate knowledge. And by, God, by saying that God foreknew us, Paul's not saying that God had a bit of information on us before we were born. That's not what he's saying. 
Nor is he saying that God took a peek down the corridor of time to see how you and I might respond to the gospel. It's a little bit of a narrow way of looking at it. No, he's saying that he knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows how we are wired, you and me. He knows how hurtful events and hurtful words effect, affect us. He knows every trauma. He knows every crisis. He knows every tear that we shed. And he knows exactly what we need for us to bend to his will and his purpose. And that will or that purpose is what he preordained for everyone who loves God. And what is the purpose for which he predestined us? That we might, that all of us might conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And just like Jesus, that conformity does not occur without groaning, right? And suffering and even death. But the good news, the gospel, that's what we've been talking about, is that just like him, that conformity also includes our bodily resurrection, our glorification, which is what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. Remember what we've been saying, what happens, what happens to Jesus also happens to those who are in him. And this is what we mean when we talk about the gospel. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Again, look at the end of the trajectory, the destiny. It's our glorification. Friends, this is God's will for your life. This is the destiny to which we are all moving. Now, I don't know if you're going to be healed. And I don't know if you're going to get that job or marry that person or be rich or be poor or inherit that estate. But none of that matters. Not ultimately. The question is this. How are you being conformed to the image of Christ? How are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Of Christ. Where is your suffering? Where is your cross? Are you carrying it or are you avoiding it? Are you constantly complaining about how heavy it is? Or are your eyes set like flint to Calvary, that place where love is most present and palpable? Friends, what Paul has been talking about. Over the course of this entire letter, if what he's been saying is true, if we have been justified by faith and reconciled to God, that is your evidence that he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, which has its beauty and joy, of course, but also its pain. But the promise is that our glorification is at the end of that road. That is our destiny, that is the trajectory. If we had died with him, we will also rise with him. That is a promise, and it is guaranteed in Christ. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, don't put your hope in this life. Money may come and money may go. All your dreams may come true, but they may dissipate just as quickly. If, if, if our hope is not in the fact that all things have been given to Christ, who did what he did not have to do, so that you and I could have a hope that we did not have to have, then what hope do we have? But thankfully, that's not the case. It's not the end of the matter. God is for us. And that is the whole point of the gospel. That God knows our weakness, but he doesn't leave us in our weakness. He strengthens us through suffering, yes, but that isn't even the full end of the picture. Beloved, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Which not only means that we become more and more Christ-like now, but that we are destined to be like him in eternity. To be raised incorruptible, immortal, and glorified. So whatever you're struggling with today, this week, or even this year, it is not the end. Cry out to the one who knows the will of God, who intercedes for you with groans too deep for words. Because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And friends, this is the will of God for our lives. This is our destiny. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of your word. Lord, these things could have happened and we just left in the dark. But you didn't do that. You gave us your apostle Paul. You gave us the scriptures, the word, that we could come back to it over and over and over again and remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, tonight that even new life would spring up in our midst at the truth of your word. Thank you for not leaving us in our weakness. Thank you for not only saving us and forgiving us, but conforming us into the image of your son. And we pray, Father, that we would cooperate with you, that we would find delight in being bent toward your will. Help us not to struggle against it, to brush against it, but to yield to you and your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.